Hi there. Let me ask you something. Are you happy? Yeah, right now, at this very moment. I mean, you must be if you're watching Brightside. But seriously, what is happiness? Is it just a cocktail of happy hormones, endorphins, serotonin, dopamine? Or is it much more than that? And more importantly, how do we find it? Where is it? Hello? Happiness? Where'd you go? We all want happiness, and we're all searching for the things and people that will give it to us. It's a pursuit as old as humanity itself, with so many great thinkers trying over the centuries to find the secret to attaining happiness. I'd like to tell you about the time that I began my search for happiness. When I graduated high school with honors, I had a lot going for me. Lots of options for colleges, a supportive and loving family, prospects on the horizon. I was incredibly proud of everything I had accomplished so far. But like a lot of 18-year-olds, I didn't actually know what I wanted to do with my life, what would make me happy. It turns out that only 45% of young people between 18 and 24 have fixed plans for the next 10 years. So instead of starting university at the same time as my friends, I took a gap year to go on a road trip in the hopes of finding out for myself what makes a happy life. Did you know that each year about 100,000 students take a gap year? Well, I was one of them. The route I planned took me across the whole country, through lots of states from New York to California. I had never been that far away from home before and would be traveling to unknown places completely by myself. But I decided to look at it as a challenge and an opportunity to grow. So was nevertheless eager to see what adventures this trip had in store for me. Me and my old van. My first stop was to help my friends move into their new dorms in New York. After we moved all the furniture in and I hung up all the posters on the walls, I felt like the odd one out since I wasn't starting at the same time as them. As confident as I had been in my decision, knowing that 97% of students in the US had reported increased maturity due to taking a gap year, doubt was starting to creep in. Only much later did I learn that this was due to an all too common peer pressure influence, which is typical of 85% of high schoolers. As I was leaving campus, I accidentally bumped into a professor carrying a huge stack of textbooks, which went flying all around us. As I was apologetically helping him pick them all up, he asked if I was going to be in his class. I replied no, and explained to him my plan to travel the country until I found happiness. He said, happiness, hmm? You know, our teacher class on that. Many philosophers like Aristotle have characterized happiness into two parts. Hedonia, which is pleasure, and eudaimonia, which is meaning. A lot of us tend to sacrifice one for the other, going either way. Thinkers and academics have argued for a long time about which one is really the most important. But I'm sure you'll find the answer for yourself on your journey. He'd go on to cite that 96% of young people who take gap years say it helped them improve their self-confidence. And 84% say they believe they've gained skills that will help them have success in their future careers. There's a thing in your brain called a myelin sheath. It covers your neural pathways like the plastic protective covering on wires. The more a pathway is used, the stronger the myelin on it, and the faster that pathway transmits messages. When you practice feeling happy, you reinforce the pathways, storing those thoughts and observations, so eventually you start noticing more things to be happy about. That's right, our minds are malleable. You can practice happiness. Isn't that great? 
That means we can have more control over how happy we are. And one last thing, he said to me. You're at a point in your life when you have lots of opportunities for success. College applications, jobs, grants. But big success also means big pressure. It's important to not let the big accomplishments make you lose sight of the smaller ones. It's important to congratulate yourself on the little things, on everything new you learn and every fractional step you take. Trust me, if you do that, you'll be pretty close to that sweet spot between hedonia and eudaimonia. Somehow, he had said all the perfect words I needed to hear. All my previous doubts washed away, and I became more sure of myself than I had ever been. So, after parting ways with the professor, I pulled out of the parking lot, pointed south, and started to drive. It was exactly then, when my journey was truly underway, that I took out the happiness pursuit journal I had especially planned just for this trip and wrote the first note. Happiness is something I must choose to practice. Is it possible to buy happiness? What if you were to come into a shop and say, three pounds of happiness, please? How much would it cost? <gasps> These were the thoughts circling through my head as I made a stop at a gas station to fuel the tank. I've been saving up money heading up to this road trip, so I had about $10,000 for the gap year. So, how much money do you need to be happy? We've all heard that money doesn't buy happiness, but research done in 2010 has actually unveiled the economics of happiness. It showed a direct correlation between annual income and day-to-day -day satisfaction in individuals, but only to a peak of $75,000. And that does make sense, right? In order to be happy, people need to be able to afford their basic needs like food, water, healthcare, and housing. But according to those findings, increased wages beyond that 75,000 peak didn't lead to a direct corresponding increase in life satisfaction. However, there was more research done in 2021 that gave us another perspective. It proposes that there might still be a connection between people's happiness level and a rise in their income, even above that $75,000. According to this study's findings, having more money always results in happier individuals. It suggests that for every 10% increase to someone's annual income, their happiness also rises by the about the same percentage, regardless of how much money they make overall. The theory here is that having more money gives us the feeling of being more in control of our lives. We all like to feel in control, don't we? But this study also shows that people who spend money on others end up being happier than those who spend it on themselves. It also really matters if the person thinks money is meaningful to them. One study suggests that people earning lower incomes are happier if they don't value money, while people on higher incomes are happier if they do think money is important to them. Pondering all these different perspectives, I wrote down in my journal, money might make me happy because I'd feel free. As I crossed the West Virginia state boundary, that's when I first truly realized I was completely alone, with no friends or family to help. But then I looked out the window, and there I saw gorgeous green mountains with tranquil rivers stitched between them. The view calmed me down a bit. After a few hours on the road, I stopped in a ski lodge that was open, even though it was summer. The view from my room's window was the most beautiful horizon I had ever seen. One evening, I talked to the owner of the lobby, a woman named Melissa. The lodge had been in her family for generations, and it was her home. 
I told her about my travels and that I was already feeling homesick. That's perfectly natural because everyone understands the value of home, she said. And it's true. Why do we feel good when we enter our house at the end of the day and feel nostalgic when we leave? It has to do with the connection between home and safety. Our brains have evolved to help us recognize and find comfort in things that are familiar to us by releasing feel-good hormones. It also explains why we get homesick. Primitively, our brains know that it can be dangerous to be far from our home, so they let us know that through hormone regulation. It's also why we often don't sleep soundly on the first night away from home. But how do we know what is home and what is not? Scientists are looking into something called boundary cells in our brains, which activate when we arrive at boundaries like a road on the outskirts of our neighborhood or even the door to the outside of our house. These cells help us recognize our safe zones by alerting to us that we're entering unfamiliar territory. Though we recognize the need to go beyond these boundaries to explore the bigger world, we definitely feel less anxious if we know we have a safe home to come back to. That safety is the basis on which we can build more exciting experiences and therefore live a vibrant life. Of course, if we feel bored or stuck in the same place, it can be just as difficult to feel happy. That's why it's important to always strive for self-improvement. This does require stepping out of your comfort zone and taking risks, but it is the key to attaining that sense of meaning in life. So, even though I felt my boundary cells warning me that I was in unfamiliar territory, I chose to ignore them and to keep going. This was the first time I truly felt like I was taking the first steps towards finding happiness. The answer was just right around the corner. I just knew it. I wrote down the third note in my journal. Home is where the heart is. Here's another question. Can happiness be measured? After all, it's not like a substance we can touch or a statistic we can measure. Today, there actually is a way to do it, thanks to the Happy Planet Index, which the New Economics Foundation created in 2006. It ranks countries according to the following equation for life satisfaction. Life expectancy multiplied by citizens' experiences of well-being divided by the ecological footprint. In 2021, the happiest country and the top scorer in the category of perceived well-being was Finland, with a score of 7.8 out of 10. Latin America is often the best performing region with the most countries that have overall high scores. But still, there's no country that's perfect in all three categories. Yet, with hard work and positive focus, we can all reach those top marks. With this in mind, I headed to Florida as I heard that it's a state full of happy people. As I was driving along the coast of Palm Beach, ocean to my left, my van actually broke down. Storm clouds were rolling off into the coast, and when I looked out at the ocean, the expanse of it looked inconceivably vast and terrifying. Soon, it had started pouring rain, turning into a storm. I was standing outside, soaked to the bone, trying to fix the van, when a passing by car stopped, and five smiling people jumped out and asked if I needed help. They introduced themselves as the Castaneda family. One immediately made me a raincoat from a garbage bag and covered me. Others started pushing the van to the nearby car repair garage that they owned. While we worked together fixing it back up, 
They kept the radio on the whole time, singing and dancing as they worked. They even generously prepared a delicious dinner for me. When the van was fixed and I was packing to leave, I asked them why they all wanted to help me, expecting nothing in return. You know, helping you, making you happy, makes us happy, Mr. Castaneda said, smiling. To this day, this memory still warms my heart. Much later in life, I heard of a study that unveiled the effects of helping others on a human's happiness. There were four groups in this study. The first group was instructed to perform random acts of kindness for themselves, such as buying themselves a small gift or spending time doing their favorite hobby. The second group was asked to perform acts of kindness for others, such as visiting an elderly neighbor or helping someone carry heavy groceries. The third group was asked to perform acts of kindness to improve the world around them, such as cleaning up litter or donating to charity. The fourth group wasn't given any special instructions, only to keep track of their own daily activities. At the end of the study, only participants who engaged in pro-social behavior, as in helping others, showed improvements in psychological flourishing, aka happiness. So people in groups two and three were much happier than in groups one and four. As I got back on the road to head out to Florida, it had started pouring again. While driving through the night, I noticed a young man around my age walking on the sidewalk. He was carrying a cardboard box of files and papers and desperately trying to keep them dry. I rolled down my window and I called out, hey, wherever you're going, I can take you. His name was Henry, and it turned out that he played jazz folk music. He played me his songs from his phone while we drove. I'll be honest, not my cup of tea. But as I dropped him off at a school and pulled away, I realized I was beaming. So I wrote down in my journal, happiness comes from being kind and helping others. Have you ever noticed that when you feel especially happy, your face flushes or your heart races? Sometimes you get a deep, warm feeling inside yourself. That's happiness triggering your circulatory system, AKA your heart, veins, blood, and lymph nodes. Scientists of happiness explain, butterflies in your stomach, facial expressions, even changes in your finger temperature, all these can depend on your emotions. The effects on the circulatory system can present in different ways physically. When you perceive something that brings you joy, your brain sends a wash of happy hormones down through your central nervous system, which then causes the reaction to spread to other systems in your body. The system that controls these things that you do unconsciously, such as breathing and digestion, is called the autonomic nervous system. Some forms of happiness can speed up these processes, like how your heart races and you take shorter breaths when you feel excited. Some other forms of happiness can slow them down, like a peaceful stroll through the park or a quiet evening with a book. Some doctors even say that the act of smiling itself can actually trick your nervous system into thinking you're happy when you're not, which causes a cascading effect throughout your body that results in your mood actually lifting. This is directly linked to your serotonin level. Serotonin is a hormone and neurotransmitter that helps regulate your mood as well as your sleep, appetite, digestion, learning ability, and memory. Dopamine is a hormone and neurotransmitter that's an important part of your brain's reward system. It is connected to pleasurable sensations along with learning, memory, motor system function, and more. For example, listening to music that gives you chills can increase dopamine production in your brain. 
Oxytocin, often called the love hormone, is essential for relationships with other people, maternity, and strong child-parent bonding. This hormone helps promote trust, empathy, and bonding in relationships, and oxytocin levels generally increase with kissing and cuddling. If you have a dog, giving your furry friend some affection is a great way to boost oxytocin levels for the both of you. A great laugh with a friend will improve a low mood by boosting dopamine and endorphin levels. Endorphins are your body's natural pain reliever, which your body produces in response to stress or discomfort. Endorphin levels also tend to increase when you engage in reward-producing activities, such as eating and working out. Exercise can do the same thing, tricking your body into influencing your mood and taking your mind off of worries. When you exercise, your body releases endorphins, which interact with the receptors in your brain that reduce your perception of pain. They also contribute to that great positive feeling you get after a nice workout. Cooking food with friends or a loved one is literally practicing happiness, and it's a surefire way to generate all these four happy hormones. Food on its own is a great source of joy. The enjoyment you get from eating something delicious can trigger the release of dopamine along with endorphins. And that's only if you eat by yourself. Sharing the meal with someone you love and bonding over meal preparation can further boost oxytocin levels. Some psychologists claim that a much better indicator for your happiness is the frequency of your positive experiences rather than the intensity. When we think about what would make us happy, we tend to think of big, memorable events like going on a long-awaited vacation, winning a huge award, or getting married. But it may instead be more likely that how good your experiences are doesn't matter as much as how many good experiences you have. So somebody who has a dozen fairly nice things happen each day could be more likely to be happy than somebody who just has a single, really amazing thing happen. There's so much more to the story of happiness, though, and I knew I had only just started my journey as I was heading to beautiful Louisiana. So, if being happy more often is better, is it possible to be happy all the time? Or does happiness have its limits? Psychologists have a term called hedonic adaptation, which they use to describe how, over time, you get used to the things that once made you happy. Like, remember the first time you got the best grade, or a big promotion, or a new outfit, or you finally got that latest game that you've been saving up for? Initially, you get that temporary rush of excitement and satisfaction. But of course, in time, the feeling faded. Before you knew it, you returned to the exact same level of happiness as you did before you got it. Which sounds like it kind of takes the fun out of nice things, but I don't think so. Psychologists suggest that you get used to things this way because you're supposed to get used to things. It's for your own good. Hedonic adaptation makes us keep striving for a better and better life in the effort to try to recreate that positive experience again. Think of it as proof. I was happy before, so I can be happy again. And emotions give you valuable information about what you want or don't want. If you're in a situation you don't want to be in, you might feel anxious or uncomfortable or sad. Just like our pain receptors, negative feelings give us a warning that something is wrong and that we need to fix it quickly. But does that mean that we should give up on actively striving for as much happiness as possible? That's what I was thinking about as I made my way through Louisiana.
as I took a long route through winding roads. I saw an elderly woman lifting a hairy wheelbarrow in the luscious garden I had ever seen. I remembered the recent lesson that I learned, how helping others sparks happiness in ourselves. So I stopped and asked if she needed any help with her gardening. Her name was Henriette. After a few hours of us tending to her garden, she thanked me for my help and made us a pitcher of sweet tea. The conversation eventually led to my journey and discussions of happiness. So I asked her what her happiness secret was. As I remember, she had been glowing the whole time with positivity since I arrived. She thought for a moment while she sipped her tea. And then she said, you know, there are two keys to my happiness, gratitude and positive associations. How often are you grateful towards yourself or the world? When was the last time you thanked the universe for your life and the good things in it? I didn't know. Hmm. I hadn't really thought about being grateful for just every day that I'm alive before. She continued, you gotta be grateful for the small things, for every little thing life throws your way, because each one of them takes you one step further on your path. It helps you grow. But most importantly, when you feel gratitude, you feel happy. And she was right. It turns out that regularly journaling about what you're grateful for has been shown to boost optimism by anywhere from 5% to 15%. So the more we think about what we are grateful for, the more we find to be grateful for. What sort of things are you grateful for? Here's a simple exercise to get you started. Try writing down a list of five things you're thankful for. I already know what the first one is. Bright side. <laughs> Gratitude is one of the best defenses against a psychological tendency called negativity bias, also known as positive negative asymmetry. It is our human habit to dwell on negative things and disregard the positive ones. It's why bad first impressions can be so hard to overcome and why harmful events in the past can have such lingering effects. For example, if I were to say to you, you look really good today, but you got a little spot on your shirt there, you're way more likely to remember in an hour that I said you have dirty clothes than you are to recall the compliment. It's okay, we're hardwired this way. It's only natural. But forcing your brains to adapt to focus on the positive by routinely reassessing what we're grateful for is a great way to exercise your way out of this kind of thinking. It's like a bicep curl for your brain. Remember that myelin sheets on our neural pathways? Focusing on certain pathways like daily gratitude gets those sheets looking buff. Henriette also taught me a great trick to practice positive association. Choose something that you commonly see every day, like an object or maybe a person, and try to think of it every time you see it as a happy reminder to be in the moment and to enjoy the world around you. Henriette loved bluebirds when she was young. And so to this day, whenever she sees a bluebird, she takes a deep breath and reminds herself of all the great things that have happened in her life. A day when she sees a bluebird is always a great day for her. Your happy association can also be a favorite aroma, a song, a piece of clothing, a place, or an activity. Something that's meaningful to you, specifically. This is called metacognition, or thinking about thinking. Asking yourself regularly whether you're thinking positively will help you remember to focus on the positive, to develop it into a habit. 
In a study of 15,000 people across 80 countries, participants were contacted at random times throughout the day and asked what activity they were doing when the call came, whether or not their mind was wandering from that activity, and then to rate their current happiness level. It turned out that what made people happy had much less to do with what activity they were doing and a lot more to do with whether their attention was fully present at that moment. People who are focused on the present moment were found to be happier than people whose minds were wandering to other things. You may think that people whose minds wander to positive thoughts and daydreams would be happy, right? But the truth is that they are still not as happy as those who keep their minds in the moment. Even if you do something super mundane like chores around the house, you will still be happier if you engage your full attention in the here and now. There was a doctor who studied happiness in the 1960s who came up with a similar conclusion. He said the peak state humans can be in is called the flow state. According to him, the average person's mind wanders around 47% of the time during the day. And when the mind wanders, we don't feel happy. The human mind can process up to 120 bits of information per second, even if it doesn't feel like it most of the time. When we're really challenging ourselves with a specific task, that's when our mind can reach its full capacity. However, our minds are easily distractible, so that kind of focus happens very rarely. But if the activity at the time happens to be something we enjoy and something that we're good at, that's when we can achieve that mental flow state, which makes us feel happy, focused, motivated, and fulfilled. You might have heard when some professional athletes talk about being in the zone. This is what they're referring to. After saying goodbye to Henrietta, I got back in my van and wrote down in my journal, happiness is fleeting, but meaningful. I am grateful for all the great people I am meeting. How big of a role do relationships play in our happiness? Can we be happy even if we feel alone? At a rest stop in Texas, I met a young up-and-coming band called Undercover Pixie and the Country Ladies, who were on tour. They related to my journey since they were also traveling. And when I asked them, they said being on this tour made them the happiest they'd ever been. Their drummer told me, while romantic relationships can be important, so can close friendships and families. All bands, but not everyone's got one of those. People have always needed to live in communities for survival, so being part of a community is wired into us. We all want to be part of something bigger than ourselves. That doesn't always have to be something huge. It can just be a nice, close group of good friends. She was right about our connection to others hardwired into us. A study tested this by using an approach called hyper-scanning which is where multiple people's brain activity is measured using EEG while they are interacting with one another. The researchers recruited people in pairs. Some were strangers, and some knew each other well, like as uh, romantic partners. One of the two participants received a simulated pain sensation, while the other held their hand, offering empathy and support. When the pairs were strangers, the researchers didn't see much of an effect. But when the pairs wore romantic partners, they saw patterns of alpha-mu-band brain activity, which is a type of brainwave associated with empathy. 
not just in the right frontal lobe of the person feeling the pain, but also in the person comforting them. In fact, the more similar the brain waves were between the two, the less pain the person receiving it reported. I think everyone can relate to that. When you are in a close relationship, you naturally want the other person to feel good. You look for opportunities to show them that you love them by celebrating with them during the good times and comforting them through the bad. It turns out giving to others in these ways is actually a gift to yourself because it can calm you and reduce your stress. It feels good to make others feel good. To be able to have successful relationships, you need to have emotional intelligence. It is the ability to understand, use, and manage your own emotions in positive ways to relieve stress, communicate effectively, empathize with others, overcome challenges, and diffuse conflict. A study was done at the University of Illinois on the 10% of students with the highest recorded scores of personal happiness. They found that the most noticeable characteristics shared by students who were very happy were their strong ties to people close to them, like friends and family and a dedication to spending time with them. Another study asked people on random occasions about their moods. The happiest among them were those who were with their friends, followed by family members, and least happy if they were alone. People who often spend about a quarter of their time each day with family and friends are 12 times as likely to report feeling joyful. Of course, we've all been lonely at some point. Feeling guilty or hopeless about being lonely isn't the point. It's completely human to feel alone sometimes, but there is always hope. A study on the quality of relationships found that to avoid loneliness, people needed only one close relationship paired with one network of other looser associations. Meaning you don't need a dozen super close friends and the perfect romantic partner to be happy. If you only have one best friend and a few other positive relationships with your family, schoolmates, or coworkers, that's all the ingredients you need for a fulfilling sense of connection. As long as you nurture your relationships and give yourself time to spend with the people who make you happiest. Interestingly, the generation a person belongs to has a big effect on happiness. Studies have been conducted to determine the most common driving forces of happiness for each generation. For baby boomers, it's financial stability and the ability to support loved ones. For Gen X, it's security, wealth, and providing for their children. Millennials care most about growing a happy family, personally. And Gen Zs have said that it's video games and digital relationships that make them happiest. Hey, this is a digital relationship right here. It's so sweet, Gen Z. <laughs> Baby boomers also seem to be the least happy generation. But there are lots of factors to consider here. Happiness is such a nuanced topic, and baby boomers are an unusually large population, so researchers aren't completely sure why yet. It may actually be the large number of boomers that's played the biggest factor, since with a larger population comes more competition for the best education, high-status jobs, and fulfilling romantic relationships. So counterintuitively, having more people their age around appears to have made boomers lonelier. Undercover Pixie and the Country Ladies gave me a free ticket to their show that night. Concerts always make you feel connected with other people, don't they? But I do have to admit, their music wasn't my favorite. I didn't realize so many people like country EDM yodeling. Later that night, I put down in my journal, happiness is to belong to a community of like-minded people.
Remember what the professor back in New York said about the uh, two types of happiness, hedonia and eudaimonia? I kept thinking about that second one, that sense of meaning. All the tips that I had learned so far were great for feeling joyful more often in the moment. But what about the bigger picture? What makes a happy life? How much control do we have over our happiness on a grander scale? In Colorado, I spent a night watching a stand-up comedian, a hilarious guy called Sam. After the show, we got to talking, and I mentioned that I was headed to see the Grand Canyon. He offered to come with me as a tour guide. Standing at the precipice of the Grand Canyon, I marveled at the beautiful expanse. It's so big and so ancient. It makes you feel really tiny in comparison. I asked Sam for his advice on how to be happy in a world so big and vast with so many people. He surprised me with the eloquence of his response. He told me, everyone finds meaning differently, but the important thing is that you never stop looking for it and never settle for something that doesn't fulfill you. I actually went to university to be a statistician, but after 20 years in the industry, I never once felt satisfied. So one day, I decided to follow my dreams and train to be a comedian instead. I've never been happier since. Success in a career is good, but waking up every day excited about what you do is the key to a meaningful life. But finding meaning is a long quest that we spend our entire lives on. It's not something we can just do once and then be happy ever after. It's something we need to do every day, finding meaning in the small things as well as the big things. Like the Grand Canyon. <laughs> Listening to Sam talk, it made sense that he found eudaimonia from being a comedian. Humor is one of the best ways to make the mundane meaningful. Humor happens when we find something unexpected and incongruent and can resolve what's going on by getting the joke, aka solving the riddle. This might be because of the ability to quickly understand solutions is a survival skill we inherited from our ancestors. So our brains rewarded with a pleasant feeling of amusement. And we have specific parts of our brains devoted to understanding jokes, namely the temporal, occipital, and parietal lobes, which are apparently where laughter originates. It triggers a rush of endorphins in your system when you find something funny. A hearty laugh can even relieve physical tension and stress, leaving your muscles relaxed for up to 45 minutes later. Kind of like yoga, but more fun. And nothing is confirmed yet, but a study in Norway seems to suggest that people with a strong sense of humor might outlive those who don't laugh as much. So you might want to add a solid dose of vitamin H to your daily routine. <laughs> I do hope you actually laughed at that joke, by the way, because a study at Georgia State University found that bouts of laughter can be beneficial even if you didn't find the joke that funny. Plus, laughter is contagious. When we spend time around joyful people, we usually get a boost of happiness as well. When you find humor and joy in everyday life, others around you laugh with you. Meaning is huge, but humor is small. There are two ends to a spectrum that when added together, bring us closer to an overall happy life. Why is happiness so fleeting? Research has recently supported the counterintuitive idea that maybe striving for happiness may actually make it harder to achieve. In fact, in some cases, the more people chase happiness, the less they seem to be able to get it. 
because they're more likely to set a high standard for happiness and then be disappointed when their standard isn't met. This is especially true when people set these standards while they're in a positive state, like listening to an upbeat song or watching a uplifting movie. Here's a test you can do for yourself. Set a time of day every day for the next week to listen to your favorite cheery song. At the exact same time each day, make a note of your mood on a scale of 1 to 10, 1 being the worst, 10 being the best, and then have a listen. While you listen, consciously try to improve your mood as much as you can. Presumably, through the week, you'll have experienced many different moods during your song listening time. Do you think you'd be able to raise your mood every time? Notice it becomes easier or harder the more you strive to be happy. Will your expectations creep higher and higher? Let me know your results in the comments. Finally, my journey was coming to an end. As I crossed the state line back into my home state of California, I was flooded with joy and relief. Ah, I thought, there are those boundary cells doing their job. Plus, I had a journal stuffed with advice from strangers all across the states. I had learned more than I ever thought I would. But it was bittersweet too, because I realized that when I returned back to my friends and family, I was supposed to have the answer. I was supposed to have found happiness, right? That's what this whole trip was for. So, was I happy? Yeah. Did I unlock the mystery of attaining happiness? Well, sort of. I knew that happiness is a lot of things. A familiar and safe home, financial security, positive mindfulness, helping others, close relationships, staying in the present moment, finding the brighter side of life. But what I really learned is how different we are all as people and how much variety there is in what we value in life. I mean, you know, you've heard all the advice. That's why there really can't be a universal answer to this question. It helps to know about the science of human thinking, but then you examine your own perspective on these ideas, your values, your feelings, your circumstances in life. Only then can you decide for yourself what happiness means to you. As I pulled into my home's driveway, my family ran out to greet me with open arms and warm smiles. My mom asked me, so, did you find happiness? And I answered honestly. I said no, because happiness is something you don't look for. It's something you create by yourself.